I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. After the video of George Floyd's murder horrified the world, millions of Americans around the country took to the streets in protest. Dion Jones was among them in Los Angeles. But something happened to the musician and entrepreneur after one demonstration that changed his life. I had been shot by a police officer with one of those rubber bullets. And the, and the first thing that happened that I said was, like, God, please don't let me die here today. Jones, who counts the late Congressman John Lewis and Maya Angelou among his mentors, says he had to do something. Hear about his lawsuit against the LAPD with the goal of banning rubber bullets right now. Dion Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. Glad to be with you. All right. Well, I said welcome to the podcast, but it's really welcome back to the podcast. And as you probably don't remember this, I mean, you remember coming to the Washington Post, but it was on April 26th, 2017, four years and one month ago, when you came in with Jesse Williams to talk about Ibroji. Yeah, so a funny story about that is because we had a meeting maybe about two blocks from there, wherever that Five Guys is across from Farragut. Mm-hmm. And we, I was like, oh, it's so close. There's no need of us to like get a car or whatever. We should, we should just walk you know, over to the thing. It's so close because obviously I lived in D.C. before, so I know, used to walk in downtown. <laughs> In my mind, I forgot I was walking downtown with Jesse Williams <laughs> across. <laughs> and so we got stopped maybe about 10 times on the way to get to you. And I was like, I wonder if in his mind, if he, if he, is he like, like, does he not realize that he's walking with Jackson Avery, you know, in D.C.? <laughs> so I do remember that day. <laughs> And clearly, you, it hadn't crossed your mind. But um, for the uninitiated, Jesse Williams is the actor from Grey's Anatomy. Uh, what was his character's name again? Jackson Avery. Jackson Avery. Well, um, you are here today on, under your own steam, but under your own steam for um, really sort of bad circumstances in that Um Well, I'm going to let you tell the story, and I'll just set it up like this. A year ago, the nation and the world was just horrified by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and demonstrations just erupted everywhere, all over the country, uh, including Los Angeles, where you live. Uh, You went to a demonstration. When was that demonstration? And tell the story. Yeah, so that demonstration was the Saturday uh, after uh, George. the video was released of Judge Floyd obviously being murdered in Minneapolis. Uh, I think even just to take you back uh, the night before, um, because Saturday, I feel like across the country, cities were just erupting. But even the night before and days prior, uh, there were protests across the country, but particularly here in Los Angeles. And the actual night before was actually the first night I had ever seen a rubber bullet be fired in my life. And so 
we were uh, protesting downtown and police officers start shooting rubber bullets at folks. And I remember the impact of hearing that and actually hit one of my friend's legs. And we ran back uh, to City Hall, sort of where we would gather each day to begin protesting through the downtown area. Uh, And they created a boundary around us so we would not be able to get out. And I remember uh, these words clearly. Uh, We were saying like, you know, can we get out? Where do we go, et cetera? And nobody was responding. No law enforcement officer was responding. And I remember clearly uh, the man told us to be seated because we were all under arrest. And it was me, my friend Ibtiaj Muhammad, a couple of other friends. uh, And we were shoved into sheriff buses two by two in the middle of COVID in these small cages, set on the sheriff buses, then transported a few blocks over to the precinct where we were sighted and let go like in the wee wee hours of the morning. And that day, the next day, um, I told, you know, my friends, like, like we're going to go to the Pan Pacific Park protest, which was one of the organized protests by uh, Black Lives Matter LA and Build Power. And everybody was talking about this protest. Like, everybody was going. It was all over social media, you know, celebrities, everyday folks, victim fam- families uh, who, you know, had been impacted by police brutality and someone in their family being killed by police. And so this was a very organized, peaceful protest that we were going to. And so we arrived. There were some speeches. There were some singing. But there were, like, elderly folks out there and kids out there. And then we began the march down uh, Fairfax. And when we began the march down Fairfax, uh, we stopped in the intersection where the Grove is and a place called Mendocino Farms. Uh, we stopped at the intersection there. There were more speeches. And from those speeches, uh, we began to continue. We didn't make it to even the next block before uh, the police ended up creating a line to prevent us from continuing to go. Um, And then chaos sort of ensued. Uh, We were trying to find ways out. They weren't, either they were not responding or either not allowing us a pathway out. Um, And then they start, uh, essentially a police cruiser got caught on fire and the smoke began to billow and just billow and billow and billow. And sort of the police sort of just went crazy um, on protesters and people were running, people were coughing. And one of the last things I remember is an impact coming to my face and knowing that I had been shot by a police officer with one of those rubber bullets. And the, and the first thing that happened that I said was like, God, please don't let me die here today. Did you have, other than feeling the impact of the rubber bullet, did did you do you remember hearing any kind of warning seeing police officers with their guns drawn anything like that that gave you a warning that something's about to go down there were no warnings in the sense of like i'm about to shoot move etc there were there were no warnings mm-hmm. like that there was an i of people saying hey either hearing like disperse but there's no safe way to do that either. And so when you're asking questions, there are no, respon- there, there are no responses. And then in addition, in addition to that, 
like the way that they carry the rubber bullets, they don't like, it's not like a gun, right? Where they have to draw it <laughs> and you're like, oh uh-huh. shit, like, you know, what's happening? Uh-huh. It's literally like a fanny pack across their chest. Oh, it's like it's like a fanny pack like type thing across their chest, and they're just able to like do this. And so I'm looking the other, I'm looking the other way. I s- actually see an officer about to aim, but as I see that, I move and I see it project like projecting. Um, and so when it hit me, the first thing that that the feeling of the impact is that it's a strong ring in your head, just ringing, ringing, ringing. And someone who's never had a head injury like that before or been hit in the head like that before, I literally thought I, it was like the ring, once the ringing stopped, I was going to either like be knocked unconscious and who knows if I would wake up. And so that's when I said, God, please don't let me die here. And my friend Niara grabbed me as I sort of ran and humped over. Uh, she grabbed me. And then once I got across... Um, I think it's a paper source. Once I got f- across from there, uh, I collapsed uh, on the ground and she ended up picking me back up and I sort of got me out of the area to the perimeter of the sidewalk uh, and I collapsed again. So you get to the hospital and you've shared photos with me uh, of your face mm-hmm. that day. Tell the listeners what the doctors told you. So when I collapsed on the outside, on the ground, there were two young students who came up who were taking some medical course and began to wrap my face and put uh, antiseptic on my face in order to, because my face had ballooned. Uh, And we were trying to wail down an ambulance, but the ambulance wouldn't stop. And so these two young girls who today, their name can escape, escapes me, but to, to this day, I haven't seen them since that day. These two young girls put me and Niara in their car and drove me first to the urgent care. So when I get to the urgent care, they're like, oh, we can't treat you because you have a head injury. So I we get back in the car, go to Cedar Sinai. And as it's also in the middle of COVID, but as I go Towards the side, like you see a line of doctors and nurses outside, and I get out the car, and the and the man says, "What are you here for? What happened?" I said, "I got shot in the face with a rubber bullet." He walks me into the emergency room, and he tells the person, "We have our first one." And so they check me in. I get into the into the uh, place, and when they do all the tests and stuff, they say. Your entire zygoma is fractured, which is literally the whole right side of my face. Um, and then post that, you know, and so I'm, they, they stitched me up. I had to get 15 stitches um, for the laceration that I had. Um, and then I got released maybe eight hours or so after that. And essentially when I had to go the, the following week, to the ophthalmologist, the ophthalmologist said the bullet was an inch from your eye and an inch from your temple. And had it hit any of those areas, you would have been either dead or blind. And when somebody's like, you know, I've never had somebody give me a, you know, a terminal illness diagnosis or anything like that. 
So when somebody tells you that your life was almost gone or you could have been blinded, so your life's loss of sight as well, um, it has an impact on you that I think is undescribable unless you've actually been through it. I know you say it's undescribable, but talk about the emotions that came with that. Yeah, I, th- I think the first the first emo- emotion is gratitude. You know, thank you, God, that that did not happen and you allowed me to be here to tell this story. Um, the second thing, I mean, when he told me, I began to weep. Um, but then the second thing that happened is um, it created a spirit of determination and a spirit of purpose even more. You know, my biggest thing is, what do I want to tell my kids when they ask, where were you when this was happening? And I knew I couldn't say that I'm just going to be at home. I'm just going to, you know, I was just at home watching it on the news like everybody else and looking out my window. Then in addition, um, as you know, in college and living in D.C., I got to know John Lewis. He became a mentor. Julian Bond was a professor of mine. He became a mentor. You know, I did my senior thesis on Maya Angelou and interviewed her 15 times. She became a mentor. Uh, Harris Walford, you know, um, through my work with America's Promise, he was a mentor. And so all these folks who were a part of these pivotal moments in life. Giants. And giants, you know. I thought about their spirits uh, and I thought about, you know, everything that they had said to me and taught me and the stories that they had said. And at this time, you know, Congressman Lewis, as well as um, even C.T. Vivian, you know, were still alive when this happened. But I thought about them and I thought about C.T. Vivian on the steps of Selma, uh, in Selma of the sheriff's office and getting punched in the face for peacefully protesting. Um, And I knew that I couldn't, you know, sit it out. And when I heard it, like I said, when I heard it, the second thing, that same spirit came over me is like, you know, I got to fight this. And you are fighting this. Um, you, you're shot in the face with a rubber bullet. You go through those emotions. You just talked about um, not just mentors. They were mentors to you. They were giants in, in the history of this country. Um, and you thought about their determination and you decided to be determined. What, are you, what did you do? And what are you doing right now? In December... I filed a civil rights action against the LAPD in federal court, being represented by Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, uh, and with the intention of stopping the LAPD from using rubber bullets against peaceful protesters, full stop. And the reason why I did that is because what I realized is it's really stifling folks' ability to exercise their First Amendment rights because this idea that if I'm scared to that I may be, you know— hit in the face and with lethal force, <laughs> the idea that a rubber bullet could hit me in the temple and I could die or hit me in the eye and I could be blinded or hit me in the face and my entire cheekbone can be broken. Like, it's scaring people to go out and it's scaring people to raise their voices and go out and protest. And that should not be the case, particularly here. I mean, this is the United States of America, right? And so particularly here, that should not be the case. And the idea that police officers are using this to stop peaceful protests is the thing that sort of 
riles me up the most and um, makes me even more determined to say, yeah, we just need to end this practice altogether. Gibson Dunn is no slouch uh, in the law profession. So this means you mean serious business. How has the LAPD responded? We're in active litigation now. I think I'm super pleased with how my team is handling every situation with the LAPD. They've had super Im- immense success so far. Uh, we believe we're actually impacting real change. Uh, the LAPD is obviously doing their own investigation. And so as in any capacity, they you know don't comment publicly on that. And I think you know what I am more most inspired by is sort of the support that I've gotten from the ACLU, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. All these, you know, historical organizations that are coming in to support this case and say, yeah, you know, this isn't right and we should have looked at this a long time ago. You were just saying that you've had some success so far. How has that manifested itself? Because the case is currently unfolding in federal court, I can't discuss the specifics. But I will say we are really determined and confident in sort of the facts of the case and what they present. It was back in April which is really just last month, but, you know, time is elastic. (laughs) Time is elastic these days. But a federal judge had ruled approving a temporary restraining order against the police department restricting its use of less lethal rounds at protests, uh, a.k.a. rubber bullets. Um, That is a that has nothing to do with your case, I don't think. But it is something that gets at what you're trying to do. And you're trying to get rubber bullet rubber bullets banned for use in L.A. Is your hope that that ban is something that others will emulate and, um, you know, take that charge to other cities? It is. Um, You know, I look at a city like Los Angeles and as huge as it is, I mean, if you've ever been to LA, the worst, you know, complaint is the traffic and how it takes a long time to get everywhere. You know, it's a huge county and it's a huge city. And the idea that we could get that use of force ended in Los Angeles, you know, I do feel that it has a ripple effect across the country. If a city of Los Angeles and the you know, can end that use of force, you know, I do feel that it can have that ripple effect. So that is absolutely a goal. But I think about that day a lot and all those Angelinos who were out there, all those kids who were out there that day. And I think about them a lot when I'm doing this. And just to be clear, that uh, temporary restraining order by the federal judge in LA was restricting or restricting the use of rubber bullets during protests this was right before the Derek Chauvin verdict was read. So, ju- so just to be clear on that point, you know, Dion, we are now just a, a year and a day from the murder of George Floyd. I would l- love for you to talk about what it meant to you 
to see that video, assuming you you watched, I, I haven't watched more than ten seconds of the video. Um, even during the trial, I couldn't. But your thoughts from the moment you saw the video, right through the guilty verdict, um, right through to now, your thoughts and and feelings about what happened to him and where we are as a country. Yeah. So. I remember when seeing the video, and like you, you know, that's not the first time, right? Like, and I think, you know, really, and I don't, I think the president had said it when, I, uh, from my understanding, Simone Sanders or somebody had shown him uh, what happened on the campaign trail. And I think he said another one. I think that was the the actual quote. And I really felt that. I was like, another one? With, like, I feel like with so much we had talked about over the past few years, like, for this to happen in this way for over nine minutes, and there was searing anger. There was emotion when he was calling for his mother. That was just so painful to hear. And then you, I think us as Black folks, we sort of sit back and we process it. I think I was thinking about, you know, what can I do? Like, I'm angry, I'm mad. I think that's obviously the thing, the thing that catapulted me into participating in the protest. But then also a part of me was, as we think about like a lot of these shows that are coming out and I don't know if you've seen Barry Jenkins' Underground Railroad or any of those episodes. I haven't seen it yet. I am behind, but I hear it is fantastic. It is fantastic. It's definitely something you have to pace yourself with, but it is is so beautiful. I I mean, I weep, I get angry at all these other things when I'm watching it. But there's a scene in there that's a very dark scene of one of the enslaved people being disciplined. And the master brings out the other enslaved people to witness this, obviously, as we know in history how this happens. And they weep, they're angry, and some part of them feels that they just, that this is just how it is. You know, we have, this is just how it is. And hopefully I can do everything to make sure it's not me. And I, and the thought process that went through my head, when I, I wonder how many of us are thinking that, that America's racist, the police force is racist. And how do I make sure that it just doesn't happen to me or to my child? Right? So I'm going to have to talk. I'm going to, you know, do these things, et cetera. And so part of me had a small part of that feeling that I just sat back and was just like, in some part, that I have to accept this. You know, like, I felt like I had, there was some part of me that had to accept part of this as what we've seen so many times before. But then I realized I didn't have to. And so that is what push me out. And so that was like my reaction to sort of actually what happened. 
Now, obviously, through the through the time of after the protest and up through the trial, Darnella Frazier, the girl who did the recording, the video, the video recording, she released an incredible statement yesterday. And that statement, and I, it's really the only thing she's really, really said and fully about her experience. And she talked about the trauma, the dreams, you know, her not being able to sleep at night, you know, people seeing her as a hero and the burden that that takes on her, et cetera. And I think from the moment it happened, the moment me being injured, through the trial, I had similar experiences in the sense of the PTSD that came from getting shot in the face. And so, you know, hearing gunshots, hearing police sirens, watching Judas and the Black Messiah and seeing one of the shootout scenes and I'm watching it with a friend and I and I jump and the friend says, what's wrong? And I try to sort of push it away and I'm saying I'm fine, but knowing that it was really that moment, having dreams and waking up with the that ringing that I had in my head, waking up with that, um, even the the capital insurrection that was you know a traumatic thing to re-experience, and so for me from the moment through the trial, you know, anytime I saw something in that capacity or similar it was really more so me having the trauma of my experience returning. And I sat there the day of of the verdict and thinking all this cannot be in vain. And I, and I do believe that the rule of law will prevail. And when I heard the guilty, 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 I, I recently read uh, Ghost of Mississippi, which is the story of Merle Evers and her quest to get Byron DeLa Beckwith uh, tried again for the murder of Megger Evers. And at the end of when the guilty verdict happened, she goes to the court steps and she screams, yay, Megger, yay, Megger, yay, Megger. And you hear all these crowds across, you know, the courtroom outside in Jackson. And I, it took me back to that experience. But I also thought about the families who don't get who don't get that guilty verdict, right? It made me think about them. And the reason why these reforms are important, the legislation that's pinned George Floyd uh, Act, that's why it's so important. That's why this lawsuit is so important. Because I do believe that it's through the law that we actually change things. Because I, I think, you know, I think, you know, there's a part of me that does agree with that statement. Changing hearts is a hard thing. Changing hearts is a hard thing. But you know with the law on your side that you can actually get things done. As part of your uh, determination, um, you didn't just sue the LAPD. You put out a song and a video uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the on the title Sunday Bloody Sunday. That is that is true, and that was a part of the healing process. I think it was that was August or so. 
because it's always interesting, particularly in these times, you know, how do you believe you can make a difference? And I think there were so many people saying a lot of things. I didn't say much because I really didn't know, like, what more I could add. Obviously, just my story, my experience, but I make this sort of slight at myself sometimes, you know, just because I shot, got shot in the face, people now add activists to my title. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, and so my, my, thought, my thought had always been around that is that I think we all participate in some form of activism in our everyday lives. And like, you don't have to put it in my title for me to, you know, do what's right. And so the song came to me uh, through a longtime collaborator of mine, Glenn Kaino, who's a Los Angeles-based uh, artist. Uh, and he was working on a show that just opened uh, at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. And the show uh, examines the two Bloody Sundays. Uh, Bloody Sunday in Selma, 1965, and Bloody Sunday in Northern Ireland in the 70s. And each one of those had, you know, force, the, the state attacking, you know, peaceful protesters and killing and, you know, almost killing and killing some folks in, in, in one of the instances. And so uh, in that, during that capacity, Bono, I was in the 80s, U2, released his song, Sunday Bloody Sunday, which was a very angry song and we were actually crazy story we were actually in years ago in planning this um museum show saying like yo wouldn't it be crazy if bono and common sung this song you know that would be insane i had a relationship with common Glenn knew in some capacity Bono. We were trying to make it happen. And it almost got there, but then COVID happened and sort of a lot of schedules got, you know, rearranged. And after the injury, after all that happened, uh, Glenn came to me and said, you should sing this song. I've always sang, I've sunk in church and all these things, play around singing at karaoke with my friends. Uh, but you know, <laughs> I, have a, I have a voice. <laughs> and so... I said, okay, I'll sing the song. And John Batiste, uh, we call John Batiste, who's a friend of mine. And I asked John, would he play the piano for me if I was to sing the song? And John said yes. And Glenn called Will Cochie, Glenn Cochi from the band Wilco, and he did the percussion. Uh, Larry Fong, the amazing center photographer, uh, came and shot the video. And this sort of... Amy Clemens sort of coached me through the process and was a trauma coach for me. And this whole community came around me where they felt that they could, I could use the gift that God gave me to sing to really make impact and have a difference and let that live uh, as what I wanted to contrib contribute at, at that moment uh, to the movement. It has been one of the most healing and spiritual processes to sing that song and turn it into a rallying cry and literally make us answer how long, you know, must we sing this song? And Bono has heard it. He was great in his response to me about it. 
and it has done really well. And we all the proceeds that we uh, raised from it, we donated it to Fair Fight to fight voter suppression. Last question for you, and that is, in in one minute, tell young people who might know your story um, and know that you've been shot with a rubber bullet in the face, who know all the stories around the country of what's happened to protesters, who might view what's happened to you as a reason to not get involved or a reason to stop being involved. What would you say to them to keep them going? Yeah, I'll start off with, you know, what Maya Angelou has always said. Dr. Angelo has said, you know, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. So you can't love, you can't trust or anything without having the virtue of courage first. So you need that to practice any other virtue consistently. So I take that mantle of courage when I go out to the streets. I think about John Lewis and so many of the other folks who say, when you see something, get up, do something, say something about it, and cause good trouble. Because when it's all said and done years from now, I want to know that I was on the right side of history. I want to be able to tell my kids where I was and what I did during this time. And I think every other young person, I think our generation is the generation that we want to lead with purpose and we want to, what we process all the time is that we want our lives to mean something to the world and we want our lives to have meaning. And that is, I believe, how you make your life have meaning by ensuring that you're not doing things just for the greater good of yourself, but for the greater good of an entire society. And I believe that our generation has actually stood up to do that. Dion Jones, thank you so, so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate you always. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart.